Welcome to Optimizing. This is Professor Barry Dwalatsky. And I'm Karen Gammy. And I'll be joining the conversation this episode. I'm Evan Wigder-Roberts. Uh, in episode five, we spoke about the CITES report and some of its recommendations. And one of the recommendations was something that really interested you. And this was the, the topic of research, innovation, and entrepreneurship. Why was this important for you? So I was very pleased that the um, CITES report dealt with these important topics of innovation and entrepreneurship. And um, at the heart of government policy in South Africa at the moment is what's called the triple challenge. And that's been at the heart of policy since the time of the CITES report. It wants to reduce poverty, it wants to reduce inequality, and it wants to reduce unemployment. So those three things of poverty, inequality, and unemployment lie at the heart of what our country should be doing. And uh, those things are achieved in a developmental state by growing the economy. So we need economic growth to do that. How does an economy grow? An economy grows by being more competitive. We have to be internationally competitive. And you drive competitiveness of a country by increasing productivity. So we have to be more productive in the resources we spend and get more bang for our buck. And productivity is driven by innovation. So at the heart of a developmental state, I believe, is innovation. In the digital economy, as we are seeing emerging today, and was beginning to be present when the CITES report reported, the digital economy has huge potential to drive innovation. And we are needing to have digital innovation to ultimately meet the triple challenges. What you're explaining sounds to me to be sort of like a pyramid. So you're talking about a, a sector that's sort of close to the top of the pyramid that's very difficult to access for definitely the majority, definitely the majority of, of uh, poor people, unemployed people. It seems very difficult to access. So how does that work? How does this sector that seems high in the pyramid spread to those triple challenge sectors? Uh, that's a key point and I'm pleased you raised that. So. There are two ways that the digital economy works. One is that it is a building block, it's an element of all other sectors. So to the normal citizen of a country like South Africa, digital isn't something they build. They aren't going to develop software, but they're definitely going to use software. So if you look at something like agriculture or mining, to make agriculture more productive, for the poorest of the poor, we could leverage digital innovation to make it more effective. So there's the use of IT, which is one aspect of the digital economy. And then there is the actual development of IT, which is, you are right, it's near the point of the pyramid. And there'll be very few people in our economy actually working as IT professionals developing software. So when I say reduce unemployment, I'm not saying that we're going to employ tens of millions of software people, but we're going to 
employ a reasonable number of software people to develop solutions that will create employment in many other sectors. So that's the sort of pyramid you talk about. Yeah, I think something else that's also really interesting is almost how you close that loop. So as much as the vast majority won't necessarily engage firsthand with software dev or like software creation, they will invariably at some point engage with the byproduct of software, which is data and data privacy. And unless there are people firmly working towards protecting data privacy and creating policies and infrastructure to make sure that that is a human right, that's also how this thing comes crumbling down. It's just if you don't have laws in place to protect people. Absolutely. So there's plenty more than the purely technical. There's a whole lot of legal, ethical and other bits to the digital economy. But I think at, this, at the heart of my thinking about the CITUS report was how do we leverage the digital or the IT industry at the time it was called to help to drive productivity, which then drives growth, which then deals with the triple challenge in our economy. And so you spoke specifically about the, the digital economy and obviously innovation, but how does digital innovation work? So I've thought a lot about this, and uh, digital innovation is in a way different from other types of innovation. So firstly, let me define innovation. There's a definition that I really like, and it says there's invention and innovation. And invention is coming up with a new idea, and innovation is applying that idea and seeing impact from that idea. The nature of invention and, and its relationship to innovation has a lot to do with finding new solutions to real problems. So for real innovation, for real invention, you would want to really have a close relationship between people who see problems and then those who can use the tools that they have at their disposal to find solutions to those problems. Call that research and call it not blue sky research, but real research that looks for problems, finds solutions, and then innovation goes a step further. Now, digital innovation is interesting because it, it can be represented as a picture. And I'll try to describe the picture because this is a podcast. So think of a triangle and the triangle in digital innovation has at its three corners. Firstly, learning. So you learn new things. In the digital world, as you know, we're always learning stuff. So it's about learning. When we learn things, if we are innovative and if we see problems, we can take what we learn and apply it to a problem. So call that ideation. We come up with ideas based on the things we've learned. And then the third corner of our triangle is business model development. So you say, we've learned something new, we see a problem that there's something new can solve, and we get an idea, and then with that idea, we think of how we can develop some business model or some way to take it out in society and make it real innovation. So that's the triangle. And it's not happening in a linear way. It all happens together. To just complete the picture, 
Flowing out of the triangle is another block in my picture, and that block is called commercialization. So we've got a business idea, but then we take that idea to market. And then there's something new out there. But then the magic of this model happens because we have a feedback loop. So coming out of the commercialization, we go back into our triangle. And in that triangle, there's something new. We need to learn about that. So there's more learning that happens. So this is the engine that drives digital innovation. And it's got two aspects to it. One is it's very rapid in the digital space. So we can go from a learning something to an idea, to some uh, business model, to something we commercialize in the matter of weeks or months. It's not years we're talking about it churning through this thing. And it's also potentially disruptive. So in the digital world, we see disruptive innovation, as we've seen, there are many models of that. So if you think of this as the engine that drives the digital revolution, it moves very quickly and it moves very disruptively. The, the question that, I've, I've, that I thought about when I thought of this model was, okay, so that's how it works, but where does this happen? Is it happening in, in large corporates or does it happen in mom and dad's garage? And the answer is neither. So it's not happening in large corporates because it's disruptive and because it's too rapid. Business culture is very, very reluctant to deal with rapid innovation and disruptive innovation. So business culture tends to block digital innovation. It's not happening in mom and dad's garage, as with uh, Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak and the Apple computer, because it's become a multidisciplinary thing. You usually need to have skills and inputs beyond what you're likely to have yourself. So where it's happening around the world are in spaces called innovation hubs or digital hubs. And I think that's the important lesson that I learned in thinking about this is that there's special spaces, there's special places where this happens. And uh, that led me to thinking a lot about how we're going to make it happen in South Africa. Mm, I, I think that the, the idea of being disruptive has become very trendy. It's like a buzzword in, in I, I assume, in the, in the corporate space. Um, in the commercial space, it's all, it's very, the word disruptive, how do we be, dis that's actually become a little bit of a trope, it's become overused. So externally, they want to sell the image that they're being disruptive and innovating quickly and moving fast, but internally, they, I, I assume they're resistant. Um, you know, and I can just sort of give an example, and I won't mention the name of the company, but I know a person whose job title is head of innovation, and is in a very large South African company that has a reputation of being a very high-tech company. And he's head of innovation, and he has told me that he can't do innovation in his company. Why? Because any time he tries to do something that might be truly innovative, he needs to get so many approvals and so many things have to happen before he can do it. By the time he gets things together, the, the moment has passed. 
So what he does and many other people in, in the corporate world who are trying to drive innovation in the digital world is they look for ideas coming from outside of their business and then they acquire those ideas, they bring it into their business. So I think that's a very important lesson is that of course corporates have to innovate but they can't do it internally. In 2012, uh, you started working on setting up a digital innovation hub in uh, Bramfontein. Uh, why, why there? So um, I had kind of seen the need for a space, for a digital innovation space. And I traveled a lot from 2011 onwards, looking at such spaces around the world. And I found some great examples. So. The one thing that blew me away was to um, go to London. I'd lived in London for a long time. And in London's East End, which when I lived there was a sort of pretty dead part of London, I saw an amazing thing going on. So it's around an area called Shoreditch and Old Street. And basically it had become the headquarters of the digital innovation um, community in the UK and even in Europe. Um, I read a book at about that time that talked about 30,000 startups had been launched in that one area of London over a two-year period. So I saw that space or that area where a lot of digital innovation was happening and it sort of cooked around these digital hubs that had popped up in this area. Um, I uh, went and visited uh, Boston, Cambridge, Massachusetts, around MIT, and there's an area called Kendall Square, and I saw amazing things going on there around innovation, uh, both in the digital and the biotech space. In Kenya, I went uh, to Nairobi, and there is this huge culture of innovation, digital innovation, that happens around a place that was uh, then very prominent called the iHub. And iHub was where a lot of innovation happened, some of it leading to the creation of M-Pesa, which is a virtual currency that happens in, in Kenya based on airtime on a cell phone. And many other places I visited, I would ask people, where does digital innovation happen? And in almost every big city, they would point me to an area. So I kind of looked at these places and I said to myself, what makes these places successful? Because there are a lot of digital hubs around the world that aren't successful, that don't succeed. So what makes for the success stories? And I came up with five critical success factors. And I'll just list them quickly and then speak about them. So the first was to locate it in proximity to our research university. So it seemed like all the successful ones I saw were around universities. So proximity to universities is one thing. So high tech happens in a brain hub where you have smart people collecting and universities are brain hubs. So it's not really that the university drives the innovation and thing. But it, it's, a, it's an area where you have a lot of smart people who gather around 
and that makes a huge impact. And not on the university, but near the university, because it lets other people in. It's not as our universities in South Africa tend to be campuses where you need access control. If you have it near the university, people from the university can get there, but people also from the broader community. And the second was in existing business areas. So it uh, never seemed to work in, in a greenfield site out in the middle of nowhere. It was always in existing business areas. The third thing is there was always existing infrastructure. There was bandwidth, there were roads, there was electricity. So they were existing business areas with existing infrastructure. In uh, many cases, quite sleazy inner city areas, which um, had the facilities but needed upgrading. The fourth thing was lifestyle issues. So because tech really attracts young people like yourselves in many cases, the, the kind of place where people live, work and play in, in an area counts a lot. So people want to have uh, pubs and food places and music venues and places to hang out. And people also hate commuting, so a place where they can live in the same area. So that live, work and play factor. And then finally, the thing that came really last was, in, in many cases that came last, was government support. The, the five factors that I saw had seemed to work in a lot of places. I then looked around in South Africa and in um, Joburg, and even across Africa, and I said, where are the candidates? Where could these places be? In Cape Town, I've seen a lot happening, and there's a lot going on in Cape Town. But in Joburg, in the 2010-2011 period, there was nothing going on in Joburg. It really was a dead space in terms of digital innovation hubs. So I got it in my mind that I needed a place in Joburg, and looking around at all the possible places, Bramfontein popped into my mind. So it ticks all the boxes. It's close to not one, but two major universities, Wits and UJ. It has the, the existing business infrastructure. There's still a lot of businesses operating in Bramfontein and central Joburg. There are definitely, at the time I was looking at it, and I have to say, the one box that it didn't tick was the lifestyle issues. Because in 2010, 2011, uh, Bramfontein was pretty run down and dangerous. So it wasn't a place where people would work, live and play. But as I was looking at this, things were happening in Bramfontein. Music venues and other things started opening. And Bramfontein became a, much more of a candidate. And then um, the, the question of government support, I didn't really count on it at first, but in time, both the city of Joburg and Gauteng province started to, to sort of look with me at Bramfontein and um, supported my initiative to try to create a digital hub in Bramfontein. I then uh, needed a building to set it up in. And I started searching around in Bramfontein for uh, buildings, and there are lots of derelict old buildings in Bramfontein. 
And then I, I spoke to this management and I said, has the university got buildings in Bromfontein? And the answer was yes, lots. And Wits had been buying up buildings in Bromfontein when property was very cheap. And we're, we're sort of buying buildings and either renting them out or letting them stand empty to just have the possibility to expand the campus into Bromfontein or pull them down and build residences. So there were a lot of buildings around in Bromfontein. And in 2012, one of the BITS deputy vice-chancellors took me on a walk around to look at some of the buildings, Professor Patrick Fitzgerald. And Patrick and I looked at this row of buildings in Jutta Street in Bromfontein. There were five buildings in a row spanning across half a city block. And it absolutely appealed to me. One of the buildings was an old nightclub, there's an old warehouse, there's an old office block, there's an old retail store. And they were pretty sturdy old buildings, but were desperately in need of some repair and renovation. And what Witz management said to me is I can use the buildings for this idea of an innovation hub. I think at the time they didn't really get what I was on about, but uh, they said, yeah, we can let you use the buildings because they're standing empty and having someone in it is better than having them standing empty. But they um, said that no Wits resources, no Wits money would be spent on renovating these buildings. And I'm quite pleased that they said that for two reasons. At, um, at the time, I was a bit bitter and twisted, thinking, oh my gosh, now I have to go and raise money. But in raising money, I connected with many companies and other stakeholders that then became partners in the initiative. And an important thing that I realized a few years later, when Fees Must Fall happened, is that there, there was no question that students could ever say that Wits had spent money on renovating old buildings when they should have been putting money into student fees and other issues. So no Wits money went into it. But what Wits did do is they supported the, the project in principle. So I worked with the fundraising office, I worked with the vice-chancellor's office to um, connect with various stakeholders that then came and put money into doing it. And I formed a, a group of strategic founding partners consisting of the likes of IBM, Microsoft, Cisco, Telcom, uh, the airports company, believe it or not, MMI, and government through the city of Joburg, Gauteng province, and the Department of Science and Technology through the Technology Innovation Agency. So it created this ecosystem of supporters who wanted to see this thing succeed. The, the first question that I that came to mind when you were explaining the process and the timeline was about what Bramfontein was like 10 years ago versus how it is now. And now when I think of what that space is like now, it makes complete sense that, that something like this exists there. How much of a relationship do you think what the culture 
there is like now with a lot of youth, a lot of bars, a lot of art galleries, etc. And and the the precinct. Of, how, how do you think that relationship works? So, um, and I have to tell a story that I haven't told many people, but in about 2000 and I don't know, 2004, 2003, which was about seven or eight years before I started doing this, I was working on Wits campus, and Bramfontein was a pretty scary place generally. People went into Bramfontein because they had to, but there wasn't any nightlife or fun stuff going on in Bramfontein. A lot of empty buildings, a lot of people living on the streets, a lot of crime. And my bank was still in Bromfontein and I had to go one day to collect something from the bank. And I parked my car near the bank and I walked into the bank in Bromfontein and then came back to the car. And um, someone was hanging out around the car, thought he was a person wanting some money. And I sort of looked around at him and I was kind of saying I didn't have any cash on me. And I suddenly saw that he had a knife in his hand. And without asking me for anything, without saying to me, give me your money, give me your car keys, lie down or run away, he just went for me with his knife. And he uh, hit me in the chest with the knife. Luckily, the knife didn't penetrate me. It left a big bruise. But he didn't stab me, although if it had gone in, I might have died on the street of Bramfontein. So from that time on, until I started looking for buildings in Bramfontein, I didn't go into Bramfontein. I was too scared to go into the place. So I find it quite ironic that I, I now have this huge attachment and huge love for Bramfontein, because for many years it was a no-go area for me and for a lot of other people. So. In the sort of 2000s, Bramfontein was a very bad place to be, but it still ticked all the boxes in my list of things that a good innovation hub would have. The only block, as I said, that it wasn't ticking was those lifestyle issues. And at the same time I was looking at these buildings, amazing things were going on. Some private property developers had started to renovate buildings, um, a lot of student housing was being developed in Bramfontein. Uh, various galleries were starting to open and restaurants were opening. So it was on the rise. And I actually had meetings with some of the property developers in Bramfontein where we agreed to work together to raise Bramfontein. And um, I just uh, have to say at this point that in my vision for Tsimolochong, as we called it, and I'll talk about it in a minute. But in my vision for this innovation hub, I had seen in my mind's eye Bramfontein becoming the Silicon Valley of Africa. So I really had that vision. And what encouraged me in that vision was in Cambridge, Massachusetts, this area called Kendall Square, which is around both MIT and Harvard. And in the 1970s, Kendall Square was much like Bramfontein was when I was looking at it in the early 2010s. It was derelict, there were old falling down buildings. People who took the subway to MIT used to phone campus security to meet them at the station 
to walk for three blocks to MIT because it was too dangerous to be there. When I went to Kendall Square in about 2011, 2012, it was like Santon on steroids. It was the most expensive real estate in America. And it had got there through this innovation activity. So it had really turned a huge corner and become a very desirable place because of this innovation culture. Just the, the uh, one thought and the thing that I, I told Vitz management at the time was that a lot of property in Kendall Square belongs to MIT. And they had gone into big property development to build multi-story buildings, headquarters for biotech companies. And I heard that they were making more money from their property portfolio than from anything else. So their vision of what had happened in terms of Kendall Square's transformation proved a huge asset to MIT. And I hoped Vitz would also see its investment in property in Bramfontein, giving them this huge portfolio of property that would bring other benefits to the university. It's looking like it's on track. All right, so you briefly introduced it, but how does uh, Timur Lohong work exactly? And tell us a little bit about the name too. So I got hold of these buildings and then I had to raise money to renovate them. And we worked with, and when I say we, it was largely I, worked with a very good architect, a guy, John Jacobson, who's got a company called Metropolis from Cape Town. He's a Wits graduate, but John has a very good idea about how to work with old buildings. Before I linked up with John, I had a lot of uh, discussions with other architects who looked at these old buildings and said, oh my gosh, let's pull them down and build a steel and glass structure and raise money to do that. And they told me that, that I should raise money to do that. And I was very attached to the idea of recycling old buildings. So for me, the beauty of having these old buildings was it created a sort of example of what we could do in inner city Joburg, of giving old buildings new life. So with a lot of help from John the architect and other people, uh, Mark Seftel, for example, who set up Open and his partners, we kind of came up with the concept of how an innovation hub should work. And the three factors that you try and make your buildings speak to are firstly flexibility. So there was a lot of thought into converting the space into very flexible space. The idea of openness. So you want to have spaces where people don't hide behind doors and walls, where there's a lot of glass and a lot of visibility, because that helps with the third concept, which is collaboration. So you achieve collaboration through having openness and flexibility. So if you've seen Simolochon and you have, what you'll see is that firstly, we've taken five buildings and joined them into one space, which works really well. We still retained a lot of the look and feel of the old buildings, but we've achieved this flexible, open and collaborative space. So the space does one thing, but then what do you do in the space? 
And the way innovation hubs work is that you attract wannabe entrepreneurs or real entrepreneurs. And there are basically three programs that we are running. One is pre-incubator. So it's to say to people who, if you, if you remember my thing of business model development, you uh, want to try and get people who've got good ideas but haven't yet moved into the commercialization phase. And you, in fact, run a lot of programs that aim to find those ideas and encourage them. So things like hackathons. So you run a lot of activities where people are encouraged to come and be creative and be innovative and come up with ideas that might be commercializable. You then screen and assess how commercializable it really is. And if you judge that it has potential to take further, you then move them into an incubation phase. So the first thing I spoke about was pre-incubation. The second stage is incubation. And in an incubator, you help them do two things. You help them to develop a business model and you help them to uh, develop a prototype. We use a methodology called Lean Startup. And Lean Startup uses a tool called the Business Model Canvas. But basically, you encourage people to come up with a minimum viable product and to test their ideas against the, the customer base. So you work in a very iterative way, growing the product and growing a prototype of your product and begin going to market with that. So that's the second stage. And then once you are earning revenue, once it's a real business, people move into the third phase, which is acceleration. So you then move them to a point where they are actually selling what they do and they need different kind of support because they're now running a business. So they need business support and you try and give them that. So that's really the three things. And then I just want to say there's a fourth thing that you want to put in. And it's what we have to do in South Africa and in Africa. So comparing our innovation hub to ones in London and the US, the big difference is people come to us with great ideas, but they don't have the competence and skill to implement those ideas. So what we also run in Simolochong, and I'll tell you why it's called Simolochong in a moment, but what we run in our hub is a skills development program as well, which is separate from the university skills program, but we help young people acquire digital skills in various ways. So there's a big skills academy as part of it. I was trying to think of an appropriate name and a person working for me, running our schools program, Koli Mishlangu, um, I asked her what she would call it. And she went away and came back and said, Tsimolochong. And Tsimolochong is a Tswana word that means a place of new beginnings. And it kind of really fits because it's a new beginning for Bramfontein. It's a new beginning for Fitz because we've moved off the campus. It's a new beginning because it's about startups. It's a new beginning because it's about skills. It's a new beginning for Bramfontein and Joburg 
which is trying to move into this digital space. So in many ways, the name Simolochong really clicks well because it covers almost everything that happens. One of the things I might not have made completely clear is the relationship between the JCSE and the Tsimolochong precinct. One of the CITES goals was to, to do work around innovation, entrepreneurship and research. And the founding of the Tsimolochong precinct was in keeping with that goal of the JCSE. So I drove the establishment of the Tsimolochong precinct as part of my activities within the JCSE. And I set up and ran Tsimolochong until 2017 when Wirtz spun it off as a separate company. So if we go back to the innovation versus invention, or rather invention versus innovation, so you have the idea of like creating something, whereas with innovation you have the implementation of this thing with the purpose of impacting something or some group of people. And I want to understand a little bit more about how Simulokong specifically relates to this process of like innovation when you get to like the actual impact stage and then how that kind of ties in with, with research, which I guess is the cornerstone of both invention and innovation. In um, some ways, the pre-incubator is about the research. It's about finding solutions to problems. But I um, have a much more literal sense of that as well. And that is where do the ideas come from? So in my vision for Tsimolochong, what was happening or uh, what happens is we run activities. So like the city of Johannesburg uh, gave us some money to run a big hackathon called Hack Josie. And Hack Josie, uh, the mayor of Johannesburg, the then mayor Park Style, put up five million rand and we basically ran a competition where we sent out the challenge and said, find an innovative solution to a city challenge. And anyone could enter. We had about 400 entries. And then we went through rounds of hackathons and elimination till we came up with a winner. But the key thing to me in setting up Simolochong was how it related to Wits University. So in running hackathons and those activities, a lot of it, to be very honest, we uh, see some great ideas, but a lot of it is recycling old ideas. So a new take on the Uber model, a new take on the um, Airbnb model. So it's not really earth-shattering ideas that we see commonly, but if you if you go onto Wits University's campus and start looking at what happens in our research labs, you'll see there ideas that do shake the world. So there are things in our medical school, in our science faculty, in engineering, in commerce, in humanities. There's a lot going on that is really cutting-edge research. But it's not innovation in the sense that it's research without impact. So things land up in papers, in journal articles, in theses, but that's where it stops. Um, so 
uh, when you go walking around on Wits campus or any big university, you'll be blown away by what you see happening in the research laboratories, in the research groups. And that's where real invention is happening. So that's the research. But it isn't innovation in the sense that a lot of the things that happen at our universities isn't being commercialized, isn't turning into innovation in that it sees impact. So we, we call that step technology transfer. And it's a challenge for universities around the world. It says, how do you take an idea from a research paper and how do you realize impact out of that idea? It might be commercial impact, it might be social impact, but a lot of research just stops at the point of being a paper in a, in a journal or being a PhD thesis. So what universities around the world have done is set up things called technology transfer offices. And WITS has one, and UCT has one, and all the universities in the US have tech transfer offices. The truth is that most tech transfer offices in the US and in South Africa have very little impact in terms of getting their stuff out. And I think it's because of the model they use. And the model, the classical technology transfer model is step one, discover the IP, intellectual property. So they scout around at universities and they go and find valuable intellectual property happening in the research groups. In South Africa, I have to say that all intellectual property produced at a public university is by default a property of the state because we're state funded. But the university has the ability to do a deal with the researcher in terms of how much or what percentage of the license fee they gain or the equity of the startup form the university would keep. And I'll come back to that. But they, they go out and look for intellectual property. They then protect it. It's valuable intellectual property, so they register a patent or a patent, as the Americans call it. So they register a patent, and then that protects the intellectual property. What then happens in most technology transfer offices is the tech transfer officer takes that patent and goes around to companies and tries to sell licenses to that. So it's a protect and license model. And very seldom does that lead to real benefit. So the classic example that's often quoted where it was successful is the University of Miami. The researchers there invented the formula for Gator-Aid sports drink. And they sold the license to Gator-Aid's formula to a drinks company that pays them huge royalties. And they've made for the university millions, tens of millions of dollars in license fees for that formula. So that's a success story, but there are very few success stories in the US, in South Africa, in Europe. So there's another model, and that other model is being used in the US, 
and it's about using the lean startup methodology, but it teaches some researchers to be entrepreneurs, to think of setting up a startup and helping them, and then having a fund and a incubator where they can bring university ideas to try and spin off companies in which the researcher has an interest, either the researcher herself or the research group that she belongs to has an interest in that startup. And these startups have been very successful in the US. And one of the visions that I had for Tsimolokong was we would form that bridge with Wits University. Unfortunately, for various reasons, that's not yet happened. We're not yet seeing a huge flow of research ideas into Tsimolokong. But when that happens, I think it'll flip the switch in terms of being really a, a true innovation hub. So I want to get on to talking about the idea of Tsimolokong being and, and Bramfontein being a future African Silicon Valley. But I just want to first understand the Silicon Valley model. Is that all privatized or are there companies and researchers and innovations happening in Silicon Valley that have relationships with universities. To quickly tell the story of Silicon Valley, it was formed around Stanford University in the 1970s, I think it really got going. And it turned into what Michael Porter, who's a famous economist, calls a cluster. So it's a cluster in that it's made up of small, medium and large companies that all work in a competing in a collaborating environment. So they compete against each other, but they also feed off each other. So it's a technology cluster, but it's really focused around digital innovation. So a lot of the big names in, in modern tech, Facebook, Google, all of them come out of Silicon Valley. And it's largely private companies but I'm quite cautious to, and I've said it, and I, I kind of almost regret having said it, that Bramfontein shouldn't be Africa's Silicon Valley because Silicon Valley is unique. It's Silicon Valley. So we will have another way of working. Something else will come out of our tech cluster, which will probably look very different from Silicon Valley. So I, I use the word uh, Silicon Valley probably interchangeably with this idea of a technology cluster. I think that what Bramfontein will have that will make it a technology cluster is two major universities in the area which feed in skills and innovative ideas but I would like to see more and more companies establishing their research departments in Bramfontein and then being in Bramfontein to run their operation. So I think in time we'll see small, medium and large tech companies establishing themselves in Bramfontein and feeding off each other in that sort of ecosystem kind of way that they'll be there for partnerships, but they'll be sitting next to their competitors and it'll create this sort of buzz. 
And when I started thinking about this in 2014 or 15, and speaking to some colleagues at WITS in the digital art department, so a friend, uh, Christa Dacherty at the time was running digital art, and he was running every year, or he had run the previous year, a games festival in partnership with a German games festival called The Maze. And he ran a Bramfontein version of A Maze. And I was running a conference called Agile Africa through the JCSE. And we were both looking for funding for A Maze and JCSE. And we kind of looked at what if we do it together and we go to the same funders and package it as a festival and package it in Bramfontein as a way to create this mental image in people's mind that Bramfontein is the place for digital innovation. So we agreed to collaborate. We called our festival Fagugezi, which means turn on the energy, turn on the power. And it's run every year since. It's grown much bigger. And it's, it's kind of really showcasing digital innovation. And my motivation for doing it is really as a way to create this sort of equation in people's mind that digital innovation in South Africa, in Africa, equals Bramfontein. So that's really why I've been behind Fagugezi. And I think it has gone a long way to, to make that, that leap. So that's how I see the future going. So I think I, yeah, I'm really glad you said that thing about uh, Silicon Valley and like not necessarily making Brahm the next Silicon Valley because as much as Silicon Valley is unique to Silicon Valley, like Brahm is incredibly unique to Brahm. And obviously like there are a lot of things that come out about the obvious issues with, with Silicon Valley that I don't know will present itself here um, just because I think we're not trying to replicate those same issues of inaccessibility and elitism, et cetera, et cetera. And then the next thing, I guess, is obviously like the festival itself. Like I've, I went last year, I think, which was my first time and I'd heard about it um, briefly beforehand. And the one thing that I really appreciated about it is that like, so one, it is absolutely a festival and like festivals can be overwhelming. And then it's also very like tech centric, which can also be overwhelming. And so like bringing those two things together and making it not overwhelming is an incredibly non-trivial task, but it absolutely does that. And I think half the beauty in it is that like you can be as involved as you want to be. And that's just like incredible. Yeah. So um, just a point to pick up on uh, what you said is that uh, diversity has been always at the heart of what I'm trying to do. So the way Simolochong works is it's a community that's member-based. So people are part of that community and if they work within the space, they pay a membership fee. But in the South African context, if you do that, and you say, well, you have to pay whatever, if it's a thousand rand or 4,000 rand a month to sit there, you'll eliminate a whole bunch of people. So when we were looking at the sustainability model for Tsimolokong, we said, yes, it'll be subscription-based or membership-based, but we'll go out to the sponsors and get sponsored seats. 
So in the first few years, we got 100 sponsored seats from the city of Johannesburg. So they said 100 people could come and sit there and their membership would be covered by the city. And that's a very important principle. So when I was first thinking about it, in my mind's eye, I thought if you're going to have it as a paper play kind of thing, we'd have all the kids from the suburbs coming and sitting there and working on their innovations. And the, the kids from the townships wouldn't have access because they couldn't afford the money. And uh, what I said when, when we were sort of briefing the architect and other presentations, I said it was important that the car guard, the Congolese refugee car guard who's standing outside in the street of Bramfontein had the same opportunity to come in and work in that space than the child of the millionaire from Santon. And in doing that, by bringing the Congolese car guard and the millionaire's child together in a collaborative project, we'll do innovation that would never happen otherwise. So to me, it's not just a political correctness and a feel-good factor of saying, let's create some bursaries for the poor. It's a saying that by creating those conversations and making everyone feel an equal part of the community, we'll get innovations we wouldn't see otherwise. And we've already seen some of those examples. So I think it's very important diversity. On Fagugesi, I think a big um, round of applause for Tegan Brister, who took over from Christo and me as the curators of the festival. And she's taken it to new heights and she's really found the funding, found the partners, and brought in such an amazing program of, um, of tech creativity. For example, we run, or she runs, a residency where people from across Africa and across the world get an opportunity to come and sit in the Timolohong environment for a whole month and work on a collaborative project and sponsored by one of the embassies. But we've seen coming out of that real true innovation with an African context. And I think that that's been the vision for it. It's not just another festival. It's not about making money. It's about creating the conversations. And Tegan's been brilliant at doing that. I think that was very well addressed. So it sounds like since you had the idea 10 years ago to where it is now, it's gathered so much momentum and the ball is really, really rolling. But what, what happens next? What is, what is coming up? It's, um, it's a living project. It's a living entity. Um, in 2017, WITS formed a new commercial entity called WITS Incubator PTY Limited, which is a WITS-owned company. And that company now operates Simolochong, and it operates it on business lines. We appointed Leslie Williams, a fantastic chief executive, and Leslie runs the project with a team of people. And my role is, is more on the 
visionary side. Although, to be honest, I'm looking at other projects or looking at at carrying the vision further, not just dwelling on the Tsimolochong vision. So I think it's well-founded, it's well, it's in place. It'll probably move in ways that I didn't envisage. So it's, it's got a life of its own. It was launched based on my vision, but my vision isn't something that's casting concrete in its DNA, and it will move forward and do its own thing. I think that all the signs are there, that the, the um, catalyst that we hoped Tsimolochong would be. I never saw Tsimolochong as, as the end of the story. It was always the beginning of the story. It is a catalyst, it is a seed. And what should happen now is people should look around the space where Tsimolochong is and see other opportunities to move into that area and do their own thing. It might be bits related, it might not be. It might be UJ related. It could be commercial companies. It could be people from other parts of the world come and set up things. But it, it, it now has to have a life of its own to try and um, move that area forward as a true technology cluster. So I'm not hanging on to, to it, I've handed it over to someone who I believe can carry it forward. And my role is now to look at other opportunities and other ideas. So I think it's, it's where we are now and I'm watching with interest how it moves forward. Thank you for listening to this episode of Optimizing. It was produced by Professor Barry Dwalatsky, featuring me, Karen Gammy. It was edited by Evan Wigdorovitz, music and sound design by Callum Cool, and the mixing was done by Joshua Clark.